right, we are back. Uh, let's let's talk about um, some interesting things in the world of movies, uh, not just Citizen Four. We, we may return to that in a minute, but this issue of the supposed North Korean hack, as regards this very bad movie made by Sony Pictures, um, the interview. Uh, this is this has started out something that we we need to address. And to quote from the Week magazine, the Obama administration this week announced it would create a new agency to deal with the growing threat of cyber attacks. In the wake of a series of significant security breaches at private companies and government offices, the Cyber Threat Intelligence Integration Center will be modeled on the National Counterterrorism Center, which was created after the 9-11 attacks to share intelligence. Lisa Monaco, President Obama's top aide for Homeland Security, cited North Korea's recent hack of Sony Pictures and said such attacks could have devastating consequences if hackers targeted a power plant. Well, that may be, but um, we've got a couple clippings in front of me that, uh, that, we, that play off of this. One comes from the New York Times saying the FBI says there's little doubt that North Korea hit Sony. Well, we have another article from The Economist, which I think is a little more provocative, noting that... Um, America might have been too quick to blame North Korea for the hack attack on Sony and raise the question that Kim Jong-un's administration might be innocent. How to sort this out? Well, let's go to one of our favorite investigative journalists down in Southern California who's um, looked a bit into this and I'm sure will have some interesting opinions on it. So it's my pleasure to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, James Diogenio. Good evening. Jim? What do you think about uh, this story of uh, of the of the possibility here that this was not actually North Koreans attacking Sony Pictures? Well, it's a very interesting case, okay? And um, I did an article for this for Consortium News, Bob Perry's public, online publication. And going into that story, you know, I I I had my doubts about it, you know. But the more I got into this story, the more I saw that the FBI's supposed, you know, 100% uh, lead pipe cinch case, you know, really wasn't all that solid. There was a lot of room for uh, doubt, you know, in this. And I really, um, if I'd have been advising President Obama, you know, I would not have told him to go the route that he did. Okay. Let me get into a couple of reasons why I think there should be some doubts about this. First of all, in the FBI's case, they say that the malware, the program used to break into Sony and foul up their computer, was written in the Korean language, Okay, which may be true. But that doesn't mean that it was done by North Korea for the simple reason that on the black market you can get malware written up in just about any language that you want it to be written up in. And in fact, one of the companies, which I mentioned in my article, that did an investigation of the case, found that very same program written completely in English in a program that was clean before the Sony hack. So in other words, it would have been pretty easy to get the malware done in the Korean language and then blame it on the Koreans when in fact it could not it would it wouldn't have been done by them then the other uh, case was that uh, the FBI said that they recognized the ISP number on the uh, computer that supposedly 
you know, sent the malware. As many cyber experts have have written about, and there's been several of them, by the way, who chimed in on this case. That is also not a reliable measure of guilt because ISP numbers can be changed. You know, you can be at one computer and use one ISP number, okay, and then two hours later, okay, you can go ahead and use that same ISP number from a different computer. Yeah. Okay, if you really know what the heck you're doing. And obviously these guys knew what the heck they were doing. So neither one of those things is really a kind of strong indicator of North Korea's guilt. Well, right? the, the Economist notes that in their initial email, these attackers didn't mention the interview. They asked for money. I'm glad you brought that up, and I wrote that up in my article. Yeah. Because that's a point that nobody mentions, okay, when they're talking about the FBI's case. In the initial email that this, uh, this secret group sent to Sony, they didn't mention the movie at all. Yeah. They didn't. They were, it looks like they were out for extortion. Right. You know, they wanted money or something like that. If that was the case, then, you know, why would North Korea do something like that if this was the prime motivation for them hacking into the computer? And as other people have also said, another indication of this is that there was so much stuff taken out of Sony's computer. And in so many different areas, like, for instance, whoever did this actually downloaded four movies that had not been released yet. You know, they downloaded a terabyte of materials. You know, that, that strongly indicates that somebody had been familiar with the whole computer architecture of Sony to right. do something like that. Right. And we should note that some of the web security firms looking into this have said, well, it looks to us like these emails were written by an English speaker deliberately pretending to be uh, right, you know, bad with English. Right. One last thing. If you were the North Korean intelligence department, would you go ahead and take this, these letters between Scott Rudin and Angelina Jolie and put them up on the cloud and pastebin? You know, I mean, who does that hurt except, you know, you know, some movie stars and some agents, you know. So, you know, it, it, it doesn't have the earmarks of a kind of intelligence operation, one nation state, you know, to another nation state. What the people who are defending the FBI don't say is that Sony had laid off over 100 employees in the last year, and they had done it kind of brusquely without very good severance packages. Uh -huh. Okay, and so it very likely could have been one of those disgruntled employees who knew the architecture of the Sony Columbia computer, you know, who, who very conveniently did this, knowing, you know, that the FBI would go ahead and try and blame it, you know, on, on North Korea. And, in fact, there's a couple of security companies that really have gone down that path and have actually kind of tried to pick out who they think actually did it. They actually have a suspect. Hmm. You know, I don't go into that now, but but they actually have an alternative suspect. Well, here we are. You and Consortium News have, have raised the possibility, as, as, as The Economist, that this might just be a disgruntled Sony employee that's behind all of this. And yet, as we started off this, this segment noting, the Obama administration is creating the Cyber Threat Intelligence Integration Center pointing specifically at this hack to Sony. Another bureaucracy uh, that, uh, well, I would say would be questionable. That's one of the worst things about this whole war on terror thing, that it, 
these these ridiculous overreactions to something like this. I mean, you know, this is what this is. They've exposed some files that expose squabbles in Holly and La La Land. You know, between the talented people like Angelina Jolie and the big producer agents like Scott Rudin. And somehow that's a danger to our national security to the point that Obama has to go ahead and create another department to track cyber terrorism. Please, that's bad enough on its own. But to not go into all the things that are so questionable about the FBI's inquiry, you know, that's another thing which I wish, you know, more the mainstream media would have done, you know, before we, uh, so we could have headed this thing off at the pass before we made this rush to judgment and this slide into uh, another anti-terrorism agency, you know, within the United States government, which I think is the kind of last thing we need. Yeah, because the other ones have done such a good job so far. And that that allows me to segue, Jim, into your piece you've done also on consortiumnews.com. But I think I'm going to assign our listeners for homework to go read, because it's quite convoluted, it's quite detailed, and people should know these details. It was from the November 23rd, 2014 issue of Consortium News. It's about Citizen Four, which thankfully I'm sure you're applauding the fact that it did win uh, the Oscar, the the documentary um, Oscar last Sunday. And this is really hard to boil down into a few sentences in a few minutes that we have, but I'd like you just to comment a bit on Citizen uh, Four and the fact that that uh, Laura Partress and, and Glenn Greenwald and, and um, Snowden have gotten together to really put something before the public that the public should know about. This is a fairly well-done documentary by uh, Laura Portress, who has done other documentaries on the National Security Agency. Edward Snowden got in contact with both her and Glenn Greenwald, all right, um, when he was going ahead and contemplating leaving the country, you know, and, you know, after, you know, going ahead and taking away these hundreds, maybe thousands of pages of NSA documents exposing what many people believe illegal surveillance. So then, of course, when Snowden did go ahead and leave Hawaii and go to Hong Kong, the filmmaker Poitras and the journalist Greenwald went ahead and they interviewed him you know, in this small hotel room for hours and hours and hours and hours on end. And they very skillfully, I believe, went ahead and created a pretty well-made and very interesting documentary about not just Snowden, but about the incredible power of the National Security Agency that it has today and how it's violated the trust and some of the laws that were put in place back in the 1970s in the wake of the Church Committee. A laws against illegal surveillance domestically, which Frank Church was really, really worried about because he had seen some of the power that the National Security Agency could wield. You know, and in, he, in those memorable words, words, he said, look, if they ever went ahead and broke their constitutional pact, and went ahead and decided to monitor dissenters, there would literally be nowhere to hide because they have access to everything. Right. Now, remember, Doug, he said that in 1976. I know, I know, which is why I want to come back. I want to go back to the 70s and come forward in time so that the younger listeners today that were not alive at the time will have a chance to see the entire ebb and flow of this thing. We're going back a, a generation on this, and, uh, boy, things 
Things really are going retrograde of late, I would say. I'm sure you'd agree. Yeah, you're not kidding. Frank Church, if, if your listeners don't know who he was, he ran the Church Committee, which was the last real investigation into the CIA, the abuses of the CIA and the FBI. And he got a peek at the NSA back then. And he said, you know, this is a new kid on the block, but look out for these guys because they have incredible powers. And, of course, they, that turned out to be too prophetic because the NSA can monitor just about anything, almost anywhere today. You know, we should plug James Bamford. His books should be read by anyone listening to this program. He is the sort of the resident expert on the NSA. He was talking about some of this stuff in great detail quite many years ago, and he's updated it since then. And, and boy, this stuff even just blows past what he was exposing, which itself was pretty hair-raising. His, his book was called The Puzzle Palace. Yes. Well, we'll have to get Mr. Bamford on the program, and also Robert Perry, who's uh, putting together Consortium News, which you do work for. He has really been out there putting his butt on the line, and, and as you say, sometimes publishing stuff that can't seem to make the, the mainstream media anyplace else. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. All right, well, last question. I was quite shocked that this movie went from being hard to find. In fact, it was so hard to find, I never managed to, to see it while it was in theaters. It, uh, it wins the Oscar for documentary on Sunday night, and Wednesday, HBO put it on, which I guess is a little surprising. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not kidding. Okay, because I had to drive halfway across L.A. Right. to see it in its first-run theater All right, when I reviewed it for Bob Perry. It just wasn't playing in that many places in L.A. I mean, in the entire city, like 8 million people, it was only like maybe four or five theaters. You know, but that shows you what an Oscar win can do for you now it's going to be, you know, on HBO Network TV, which is terrific because I think that film deserves a lot more exposure than it got in its first run. You know, that's just wonderful. You know, I disagree with a lot of the Oscars. Well, that's one I don't disagree with. <laughs> okay, so that's really a good thing. Well, I'm with you on that, and I hope everybody gets a chance to see it who has not done so. Actually, I want to see it again. From I missed a few minutes of it. I want to see the whole damn thing start to finish. Edward Snowden certainly appears to be uh, an American hero. I, I totally agree. Jim Diogenio, always a pleasure, uh, always keeping us informed. We appreciate it. It's just a great thing that to be able to pick up the phone and give you a call, and I'm glad you're there for us. Thank you very much, Doug. All right, if we had more time today, we'd talk about a piece that I saw on uh, Facebook, although I'm really on Facebook. It was put there by one of our fellow public affairs hosts here at uh, KDVS, Graham Smith, citing an article by Nate Silver claiming that the Oscars uh, generally are right, that the, the Academy generally gets it right in picking the best picture, uh, a point which I find kind of ludicrous. The Academy Awards have a long, long and treasured history of making bad choices. Or how about the Hurt Locker was a good picture? Nate Silver kept trying to cite the choices of the American Film Institute uh, showing that the Academy Awards are usually correct, but the AFI's choice for the number one film of all time, I, I believe, is still Citizen Kane, and you might note that it, it didn't actually win the Best Picture Oscar that year. But I think we'll just uh, quote uh, the Romans, who had a phrase that fits for this, de gustibus non est disputandum. How much you like something is really not a matter of dispute, but we all love to fight about it anyway, which allows me to segue into the Rolling Stone issue looking at Saturday Night Live, where they basically ranked every single cast member, which is just on the face of it, absurdly unfair. But even beyond that, they did a crappy job. They give John Belushi number one. That's a safe pick. But Eddie Murphy number two? 
No way. Tina Fey, number three, no way. And yeah, I can see their choices for four, five, and six. Mike Myers, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, deserving of uh, recognition. But I would rank number seven, Phil Hartman, probably as the single greatest performer they ever had on that show. But hey, that's just my opinion, not that of KDVS, our sponsors of <laughs> the University of California. But, uh, you know, I just, you look at this list and like, how could they give Amy Poehler number eight? She's not even funny. Anyway, um... There are some wonderful little quotes from the Rolling Stone. You would expect there'd be at least a few. Like this for choice number 34, Dennis Miller. (laughs) They say, the 80s man, Elton John married a woman, and Dennis Miller was funny. This would be a tough explaining either fact to future generations. But let history record that when the Berlin Wall came down, Dennis Miller had the right cheap smirk at the right time, comparing the event to Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis getting back together. I haven't really enjoyed any of their previous collaborations, and I'm not sure I need to see their new stuff. Anyway, in the opinion of this correspondent, the Saturday Night Live uh, ensemble was best in the late 80s and early 90s when they had Kevin Nealon, Phil Hartman, John Lovitz, Dana Carvey, Jan Hooks, the best female they ever had in the show. And if you can watch Nora Dunn hosting Succinctly Speaking, (laughs) where they bring on their three guests, Tarzan, Tonto, and Frankenstein to take up the topic of fire and witness Kevin Nealon's Tarzan saying, fire good. Lovitz's Tano echo, fire good. To which Hartman's Frankenstein counterpoints, fire bad. If that doesn't make you laugh, you better check your pulse because you may already be dead. This whole thing is worse than the Oscars. It depends on the writers they had. And they rather unfairly cited some of the writers who also were occasionally actors in the ensemble. I think if they'd taken the very best people that ever appeared on the show and were trying to uh, act out some skits to bad writing, it would have flopped. As I'm saying this, I'm looking down at the magazine to see the picture of Don Novello, better known as Father Guido Sarducci. And I just have to get a wave of nostalgia thinking about (laughs) him coming on the show as the gossip columnist from the Il Observatore Romano, the Vatican newspaper. The Rolling Stone notes, hey, Guido Sarducci might have been the inspiration for the current Pope Francis. And you know, they may have a point. First you get down on your knees, fiddle with your rosaries, bow your head with great respect and genuflect, genuflect, genuflect. Let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Do whatever steps you want if you have cleared them with the pontiff. Everybody say his own, Kyrie eleison, doing the Vatican Get in line in that processional, step into that small confessional. They're the guy who's got religion. I'll tell you if your sin's original. If it is, try playing it safer. Drink the wine and chew the wafer. Two, four, six, eight. Time to transubstantiate. So get-